Chapter 3, Pathology of Fallen Man Continued. Section 2, Pathology of Desire and Pleasure. A. The Diversion of Desire and the Perversion of Pleasure. Man was created to be united to God. The faculty of desire was placed in his nature so that he could desire God, yearn for him, and be raised and united to him. Therein lies the correct usage of this faculty, in conformity with its nature, and contributing to the building up of his health. Quote, the eye was created for light, the ear for sounds, everything for its end, and the soul's desire so as to soar up towards Christ. And quote, affirms St. Nicholas Cabasilas. Christ, our God, is the goal of all desire, writes St. Simeon the New Theologian, in like manner. To unite oneself to God is the most desirable thing for man, in conformity with the goal of his very nature. The summit of what is desirable is to become God, writes St. Basil. To every desire is linked a pleasure. From his desire's natural orientation towards God, man receives intense spiritual delight. Quote, in ordering human nature, teaches St. Maximus, God endowed its mind with a power of pleasure that enabled it ineffably to delight in him. This divine and blessed delight constitutes for man the highest joy, for man draws from his participation of the life of the infinite God an infinite pleasure. This is what Christ calls perfect joy in John 15, 11 to which he otherwise could not attain, since every object outside of God, being finite, can only provide a partial and limited pleasure. St. Maximus also notes, quote, There is only one happiness, the common life of the soul with the word. The soul pleasure is access to divine things. End of quote. Adam in his original state, which, let us recall, makes up the normal state of all mankind, desired nothing else but that God orientate toward himself his whole entire power of love and receive from him alone every pleasure, joy, and happiness. God was for man the sole source of pleasure. He found his delights only in the one Lord, says St. Gregory of Nyssa. Moreover, he says more specifically that Adam delighted not in mixed goods in paradise. Quote, the sole benefit of pleasure accorded to man was the true good himself. End of quote. In other words, man did not know any sensual pleasure in his original state. God, the Word, who created the nature of men, did not establish sensual pleasure along with it, remarks St. Maximus in his questions to Thalassius. To continue, the devil, jealous of the spiritual joy to which man was destined, thus suggested to him to turn his desire away from God and to orientate it in a direction against which God had warned him by the commandment he had given man. The devil, St. Maximus explains, persuaded man by a deception to let his soul's desire pass from what was permitted to what was forbidden, and to turn away by transgression from the divine commandment. Man was tempted by the serpent to delight in other pleasures, still unknown but more immediately and easily accessible than the spiritual delights for which his nature made him yearn, but which he still only partially attained, the perfect possession of which could not be obtained until the fullness of his spiritual growth should be reached. These pleasures 
proposed to man by the devil, were linked to the desire for sensible realities, of which man was ignorant, per se, in his first state. Adam was destined indeed to delight in sensible realities, but to delight spiritually in them, that is, in God, by means of their spiritual reasons, their logai. St. Maximus teaches that God, in creating Adam as the ultimate creature, a kind of laboratory in which everything is concentrated, introduced him, quote, providentially amidst beings as the natural link between the extremes of creation by giving him to possess naturally in his medial location every faculty of unification by the relation of his parts to all the extremes, end quote. God had thus given him the task of making manifest the great mystery of the divine plan by harmoniously carrying out to the end the mutual unification of extremes from among beings, from the closest to the farthest away, the least to the greatest, by an effort whose result would culminate in God. In particular, man had the task of unifying sensible creation and uniting sensible things to intelligible ones by love and by the knowledge and contemplation of the creature's logai, their reasons. But Adam, through the wrong use of his freedom, turned aside from this task, which in the end was supposed to unite him to God and all creation through him. He thus perverted his own nature. As St. Maximus writes, quote, he moved contrary to his nature, madly, and of his own initiative, making a bad use of the natural faculty which had been entrusted to him in his constitution with an eye to the unification of what was separated, so as rather to work at separating things united, end of quote, Maximus Ambiguia. To continue, Adam particularly began to consider and desire creatures in and of themselves, and to want to take pleasure in them for himself egotistically, that is, outside of God. In other words, as St. Maximus says, to want to, quote, lay hold of the things of God without God, and before God, and not according to God, end of quote. Thus man substituted carnal desire and pleasure, contrary to nature for spiritual desire and pleasure in conformity with his nature. A pleasure introduced by deception was the beginning of decline, writes St. Gregory of Nyssa. And St. Cyril of Scythopolis says, quote, Adam preferred what had seemed delectable to his carnal eyes over intelligible beauty. Explaining this process, St. Maximus observes, desire through the sweetness of sensual pleasure leads the mind away from the divine perception of intelligible things that are co-natural to it. Ceasing to desire and love God, man was thus captivated by a carnal love for himself, which the fathers, and particularly St. Maximus, call self-love, as well as for sensible reality, henceforth taking all pleasure and delight in this and in himself, mainly through the intermediary of his senses and consequently his body. Footnote. It is fitting to note here with St. John Damascene that sensual and carnal pleasure is not only bodily. Quote, of pleasures, some concern the soul and others the body. Of the first, there are some that only interest the soul itself. 
The pleasures of the body are called such, but in reality exist only by the union of the soul and the body, as for nourishment, sexuality, etc., and one does not find any pleasure which is solely of the body, from an exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. And Maximus the Confessor explains sensual pleasure and its relation to sensual desire thus, quote, sensual pleasure is nothing other than a type of sensation formed in the senses by a sensible object. In other words, a mode of sensory activity corresponding to an irrational desire, and the sense put into motion in the wake of the desire produces pleasure when it perceives the sensible. End of quote. To continue. St. Athanasius writes, quote, Neglecting the higher realities and slow to grasp them, men sought rather those which were close to them. Now that which is closer is the body and the senses. Likewise, they turned their mind away from intelligible things and began to consider themselves. And considering themselves, becoming attached to their body and other sensible things and erring, so to speak, in their own reason, they came to desire themselves, preferring their own possession to the contemplation of divine realities, and of quote, against the pagans. Dr. Larcher continues, this deviation of the innate desire for God, this conversion of the desirative power of man, which he turned away from God towards whom it was naturally oriented, so as to turn it against nature or against reason, or in illness of this faculty, affecting man's entire nature, as we shall see. In fact, as St. Maximus recalls, quote, evil is the mismanagement of the innate faculty's action towards their end, and absolutely nothing else. Additionally, evil is the irrational movement of the nat natural faculties towards something other than the end, according to an erroneous judgment. I call end the cause of beings towards which all things gravitate by natural desire. End of quote. Correlatively, sensual pleasure appears as the soul's energy against nature, which St. Maximus says cannot have any other origin for forming itself than the soul's resignation when it shrugs off things according to nature. That is why the fathers often speak of the illness of pleasure and regard the love of pleasure as one of the primary and most important spiritual illnesses of fallen man. One can ask oneself here what the first cause of man's fall was, whether it is because man began to orientate his desire towards sensible reality that he was ignorant of God, or whether it was after disregarding God that he turned toward the former. The fathers tend to favor the first solution, emphasizing the immaturity and infantile state in paradise of man, who acceded to the devil's suggestion of taking to himself the goods that were more easily and immediately accessible to him. We have just seen St. Athanasius's comment on this. St. Maximus takes a similar stance, quote, the devil covering his jealousy with a mask of goodwill and fraudulently persuading man to direct his natural desire towards something other than the cause of beings, succeeded in fabricating the ignorance of the cause. 
But it is equally possible to insist upon the other viewpoint. There is, in fact, an interaction of the two reasons, a dialectic that St. Maximus evokes in the following passage, which describes the process of decline, where one sees that on the one hand, desire for the sensible and its pleasure, and on the other hand, ignorance of God. But in any case, the same desire and self-love correlatively increase, reciprocally condition one another, and are mutually reinforced. To quote, The more that man went after sensible things through his senses alone, the more the ignorance of God overcame him. The more he was enslaved by the ignorance of God, the more he gave himself over to the delight in material things known empirically. The more he was imbued with this pleasure, the more he aroused the self-love, which was the consequence of it. The more he cultivated self-love, the more he invented various means for obtaining pleasure, the fruit and goal of love of self. End of quote. The various forms of desire by which fallen man seeks in diverse manner to obtain the sensual pleasure to which he henceforth devotes his existence constitute the passions that appear as man's inventions to respond to his new needs. Likewise, forming the passions are the means man employs, both psychologically and physically, to drive away the physical as well as mental pain that is linked with such pleasure, as we shall subsequently see. Quote, Seeking to obtain pleasure and to avoid suffering, incited by self-love, man invents multifarious and innumerable forms of corrupting passions, St. Maximus writes, who says again further on, quote, The vices present themselves in multiple and various forms, according to the connection each has with human nature. They compel man, subject to the desire for pleasure and the fear of suffering, to serve them and to invent numerous forms of passions, depending on the possibilities offered by the circumstances and by the means. End of quote, St. Maximus, uh, Questions to Thalassius, Prologue. End of section A the diversion of desire and the perversion of pleasure. Chapter 3, Part 2, Pathology of Desire and Pleasure, continued B, Economy of Desire. Spiritual desires, converging in the desire for God and sensual or carnal desires, do not constitute, as one might initially believe, two kinds of different desires by their source. Man in his being disposes of only one desirative power. In the man whom we have defined as normal, Adam, before his sin, the saint, the man restored in Christ, this desirative faculty, in conformity with its nature, is completely torn, turned toward God, the normal and natural object of human desire. The sensual desires that show up in fallen and sinful men are in their basic nature nothing other than this same desire, which being diverted from its normal divine goal, has orientated itself against nature, and being reinvested in sensible reality, in whose multiplicity desire is divided up. All of fallen man's desires thus seem to be formed by the pathological decline 
and reinvestment of the natural desire originating from God by the diversion of desire against nature and its perversion. These desires are but pale imitations of the original, just as the sensual pleasure that man obtains by them is nothing but a simulacrum and counterfeit of spiritual pleasure and the true good. A great many patristic teachings support this idea. The relationship to the flesh, writes St. Maximus, divides the love that we owe to God alone. Origen pointing out the two diverging directions that the one erotic faculty inscribed in man can take, writes more precisely, quote, One of the movements of the soul is love. We use this to love well when we love wisdom and truth. But when our love condescends to things less good, we love flesh and blood. And of course, Abba Isaiah affirms even more precisely, quote, in the mind, there is a desire in conformity with nature, the source of charity, and on account of which Daniel is called a man of desires. This desire the enemy transformed into a shameful desire that brings us to cover all that is impure. End of quote. See Daniel chapter 923 and Abba Isaac on the Song of Songs. St. Gregory of Nyssa is seen to be just as explicit when he mentions those who, quote, having upturned all their power of desire and diverted the impulse of their thought on divine realities towards base material objects, open wide the field of inner being to the passions, to the point of ceasing all movement toward realities on high, and of beholding completely dried up for, dried up the desire for God, and spiritual realities, the inverted course of which was has rushed towards the passions on virginity. St. Gregory of Nyssa likewise speaks in another place of the man who, hiding away the love due God alone, squanders it among human passions. Furthermore, he writes, passing by as base and ephemeral as the objects that attract men's desires, which are held to be beautiful and are thus deemed worthy of zeal and favor, we must not squander among any of them our power of desire. An essential characteristic of the desirative faculty, bearing witness to the fact that man's desire is fundamentally singular, is that it cannot be shared between God and sensible reality. As St. John Chrysostom says, quote, The same heart cannot suffice for several passions. One passion drives away another, and being shared, it becomes weaker, the dominating passion drawing everything to itself, end of quote. John Chrysostom, the golden mouth in the commentary of Gospel St. John, chapter 2. To continue. And as St. Isaac the Syrian notes, no one can possess at once the love of God and the love of this world. Our power of desire, as St. Gregory of Nyssa more precisely states, is not of such that it can simultaneously attend upon the sensual delights of the body and the spiritual marriage. He explains, quote, Indeed, the eye does not have the capacity to see two things at once unless it focus alternatively and separately on each of the visible objects. The tongue also cannot be in the service of different idioms, uttering at the same time both Hebrew and Greek words. 
The sense of hearing cannot listen simultaneously to a reporter of the news and an edifying teaching. End of quote. It is fitting here to recall St. Paul's own teaching. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you would. Galatians 5.17 In this context, one can also apply the word of Christ. Quote, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew 6.24, Luke 16.13 Thus, by investing his desire into one domain, man, by this very fact, automatically diverts it from another area. Quote, the care for one necessarily leads to the separation from the other, observes St. Gregory of Nyssa. Consequently, the more man desires and loves sensible objects, the less he desires and loves God. St. John Chrysostom asks, How is it that our love for Jesus Christ is so weak? except that we exhaust all the might of our soul in vain passions. End of quote. He who does not desire God necessarily desires sensible beings and loves the world. Here we understand the word world in its traditional spiritual meaning of the flesh, the passions. To continue, he who does not know how to tread the spiritual path, focuses all his efforts on the flesh, notes St. Maximus. And St. Gregory Palamas observes that the man who does not love God with all his soul and all his heart, quote, flutters about throughout this world and in its, favorable, in its favor exhausts all or almost all the love of which his soul is capable. See the triads. Conversely, Hugh who truly desires and loves God cannot desire any sensible object or to experience passionate desires, for he invests his desires whole power in God and spiritual realities. St. Paul the Apostle teaches, quote, Walk by the Spirit. Do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5.16 And St. Diodocus of Photiki asks, What desire for the goods of this world shall remain in him who is nourished by divine love? St. Gregory Palamas says in the same vein, with those who have lifted their mind to God and exalted their soul by the passion for God, the flesh no longer possesses desires contrary to the spirit. End of quote. Additionally, St. Simeon, the new theologian, writes on his part, quote from his catechesis, the soul united to God by love cannot be drawn away by the body's pleasures and appetites, or even toward any other desire for anything visible or invisible, be it an object or a passion. For the sweet love of God unites the impulse of his heart, or better said, all the inclination of his will. And once this, the will, is bound to its own creator, how then can it burn with fever because of the body, or in the smallest way carry out its own desires? in no wise. End of quote. This fact that desire diverted from one of the two domains, spiritual or sensible carnal, in which it invests itself, is necessarily found reinvested in the opposite domain, is explained by the soul's roving character and the fact that man 
cannot stop desiring. Thus, if he withdraws his desire from the object on which it was focused hitherto, he immediately feels the need to devote himself to another. St. Nikitas de Stratos explains, As the soul is by nature mobile, it is subject to change. If she neglects attentiveness to divine things, she thus falls into mundane concerns. End of quote. Nikitas de Stratos on the soul. This is the same argument that St. Athanasius uses when describing the original fall. He writes, quote, The soul is mobile by nature, and even if it is diverted from the good, it does not cease being in movement. Thus it moves. But this is no longer toward virtue, or so as to behold God, giving its thought to that which is not. The soul transforms the power within and makes use of it in order to turn to the desires it has imagined, since it has been created independent. The soul can incline toward good, but also turn away from good. And in turning away from good, it ponders utterly contrary things. For the soul cannot absolutely cease from being in movement, being by nature, as I have just said, very mobile. End of quote. St. Athanasios against the pagans. C. Pathology of Desire and Pleasure in Fallen Man, continued. Speaking of fallen man's perverted desire, St. Basil the Great writes, Desire is the illness of the soul. This is true in many ways. When man turns his desire away from God, who is its natural, normal, and proper goal, so as to orientate it toward himself and sensible beings, to take pleasure in them outside of God, he unduly alters its usage, no longer directing it in conformity with his nature and acting rather against nature. By delivering his desire's natural power up to the senses, man finds himself oriented, contrary to nature, towards the sensible by the pleasures at work in him. As St. Maximus explains, and St. Nikita Stathatos writes, quote, If he desires the stable goods of God, which are everlasting, then man is moved according to nature. If he nourishes desire focused on matter, turned to what is fleeting and not lasting, then he is moved contrary to nature and unreasonably. End of quote. Unreasonably here means contrary to the reason, which in the last analysis according to the patristic perspective, means conformity to the logos, the word. In other words, by turning his desire away from Christ, man raves, behaving in a mad and insane manner. Footnote thus, John Chrysostom says, quote, We who have given our hearts over not to insane love, but to the noblest, the highest of loves. To continue, this is why Saint Maximus, with desire, with regard to the desire of the man diverted from his divine goal, speaks of the impulse against nature that throws into the sensible the mind gone mad. Man's inverted desire makes him live in a topsy-turvy world, where values are reversed, where things have lost their authentic order in their true proportions. Quote, it indeed treats 
the beings that are after the single and sole desirable cause and nature as more desirable than this cause, and thereby renders the flesh more valuable than the spirit, and the delight in what is visible more pleasant than the glory and radiance of the noose. End of quote. Maximus the Confessor, Commentary on the Lord's Prayer. Desirable things, observes St. Maximus, man fears, pushes away, devoting instead all his care to things undesirable. Fallen man thus begins to live in complete delusion. Since he has lost the sense of the true God in his desire's new inclination and the discovery of new pleasures, man, man ends up treating sensual pleasures and desires as absolute. And through these, their objects, which he puts in place of God, as St. Maximus explains, quote, given over to the emotions of the senses alone, just like brute animals, the man far away from divine and spiritual beauty finds through the experience of the exterior and corporal part of his nature, a creation that he raises to the place of God, because this responds better to the needs of his body. End of quote. Man thus fashions for himself sensible realities, a multitude of false gods, of idols, crafted according to the nature and scale of his perverted desires. In his relations with creatures, man no longer thinks of God, but only his own pleasure, and no longer has any standard but his own sensual desires. He no longer considers or deals with beings in relation to their reasons, their logi, their spiritual reasons, but rather relative to the degree of his desire for them. Man defines their importance and measures their value by the intensity of pleasure he can gain from them. Thus the world becomes for man a fantastical projection of his desires, and creatures become the means to satisfy his passions, instruments of his sensual pleasure. Man's relations with all beings of creation and even with his fellow human beings are thus totally perverted, since all of these in his eyes lose their spiritual value, find themselves reduced to objects of pleasure given as fodder to his various passions. Relations among mankind become at heart the relations of objects to objects, given over to the whims of desire and sensual pleasure. Moved by his perverted desire, man constantly errs in his definition and search for his good, for good in general. In desiring God, man desired the true good and judged everything exclusively according to him. Knowing and desiring only God, he rejected evil. Through sin, he tasted of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. Through his desire for sensual pleasure, he left the absolute and single good to experience evil and usher in a mode of existence in which good and evil end up becoming confused for him. He accumulates in himself, says St. Maximus, a disordered knowledge of good and evil, affected by his experience of the senses alone. In the conscience of fallen man, evil is no longer considered as such, but is taken over as being good. Pleasure becomes the criterion of good in the fallen state. The knowledge of good and evil which men acquired through their sin no longer refers to the true knowledge or to the discernment which was theirs while they knew the true good and refused evil. 
Rather, as St. Gregory of Nyssa remarks, it signifies, quote, an interior disposition as regards what is pleasing to them. End of quote. Man can thus designate and search out as good that which pleases him for the sole reason that it pleases him, even though it be objectively harmful to him. He flees, as from evil, what is objectively good for him, for the sole reason that it annoys him on the sensual level. Good and evil are therefore subjectively defined by sensual desire and in function of the sought-after pleasure, and man permanently creates a confusion between what appears to be good to him relative to his fallen desire and what is really and truly good. Thus, St. Gregory Palamas writes, quote, Man, seized and driven by wicked desires, strives towards what seems beautiful to him, and man, possessed by an ill-placed wrath, fights for what seems to him to be good, Every man without exception, if he is bound to a bad life, dedicates himself to what appears to him to be the best and not to what really is. End of quote. The phrase used by scripture, knowledge of good and evil, to designate the new ability acquired by man through sin means nothing other than this confusion of the false good towards which sensual desire hastens with true good, according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, he writes, quote, Since then, the majority take as good that which charms the senses, and since one word means both the real and apparent good, the desire that hastens towards evil, as if this were good, is called by Scripture the knowledge of good and evil. This word knowledge signifies this interior disposition and mixing. End of quote from The Making of Man, Gregory Vanessa, to continue. This state in which man confuses evil for good and takes one for the other can be thought of as a true state of delusion, as St. Athanasius writes. Quote, seeing that pleasure was for it a good, the soul exploited the name of good in its error, thinking that pleasure was the true and absolute good, just like a man who, seized by dementia, might ask for a sword to strike those whom he meets and would believe wisdom to lie in that, end of quote. St. Gregory of Nyssa affirms many times over that man is a victim here of an illusion. The things occasioning evil for us quote, seem at first glance desirable and are sought out like a good following some deception, he writes. Furthermore, he says, evil in its depth holds death like a hidden snare, but by a deceptive appearance shows forth an image of good. The inspirer of this illusion, he explains, is the devil. Quote, it happened that the noose, the intellect led astray in its desire for what is true, truly good, was diver diverted toward that which is not. Deceived by the instigator and counselor of vice, the noose allowed itself to be persuaded that the good was the complete opposite of the good, end of quote. In addition, the intellect, or noose, allowed itself to think of the devil as an enchanter who literally bewitches man with consent, quote, causing the exterior grace of appearances to shine forth and like a charlatan, charming our taste by some pleasure of the senses. Under the influence of this illusion, man moves about in a world of appearances, 
no longer seeing or considering anything but the sensible reality which his fallen desire alone assigns him, and outside of which he believes no good to exist. St. Athanasius writes, quote, The soul took delight in the passions of the body and the only goods present. Beholding their semblances, the soul believed that only what was visible existed, and that only transitory and corporal things were the good. To continue, this reduction of reality to a portion of itself and the distorted vision resulting from this likewise appear as a delirious state brought about by the decline of desire. This is all the more so since man, by desiring beings according to their sensible appearance and outside of God, and by claiming to delight in them as ends in themselves, desires and takes pleasure in a phantasm and attaches himself, as we have just shown, to something having no real existence. The perversion of the faculty of desire has grave consequences for men. Their life becomes deplorable, says St. Maximus. They begin to deify and worship passions that God had forbidden them even to think of. The saint continues, quote, They thus honor the very cause of the annihilation of their existence and themselves pursue without knowing it the cause of their corruption. Fallen man destroys himself by means of his desires contrary to nature. St. Maximus observes, Men, like wild cats, devour their own kind. Elsewhere he notes that man, through his sensual pleasure, poisons himself. The soul's throat is slit by the fire of bodily passions, says St. Mark the ascetic. For his part, St. Gregory of Nyssa affirms, the impetus leading living beings to evil is an illness of our nature. In fact, by turning his desire away from God and giving himself over to sensual desires, man not only perverts and sickens his desirative power, but also introduces turmoil into his whole being, notably making all his faculties function the wrong way, in a disorderly and dissolute manner. St. Maximus remarks that man devoting all his cares to undesirable things alters the faculties of his soul, which pursues perishable things without discernment and without being aware of its perdition as a result of its utter blindness with regard to the truth. One of the most notable troubles that man is subject to is the confusion of his faculties. St. Maximus thus holds that the golden calf, which symbolizes sensible reality erected as an idol, simultaneously represents the mixing and confusion of the natural faculties among themselves. Or rather, he says, it is a stupid and passionate union determining the stupid impulse of the passions against nature. The effects of the in inversion of desire are first of all felt in the intellect, the noose, whose pathology we examined in the previous chapter. Here, let us but note that blinded by pleasure and deceived by it, the intellect no longer exercises its natural function of knowledge, contemplation, theoria, and discernment, nor any longer what is likewise natural to it, the oversight of the desirative power. On the contrary, allowing itself to be captivated by this power, the noose places itself at the former's service. 
Henceforth, it makes one of its primary activities the search and use of the means that permit it to obtain the sensual pleasure it, it covets. Another fundamental pathological effect of the perversion of the desirative power is the division of man's faculties, and first of all, that of desire. In the first condition of Adam, man's desire was perfectly unified, having God as its sole object and never ceasing to yearn entirely for him. Man desired nothing but God and had but one desire for God. When desire was turned away from God, it lost its unity and by being turned toward the sensible world, considered independently of God, desires scattered amongst a myriad of things in which the fallen intellect henceforth beholds it. Desire becomes multiform and is divided up amid a multitude of heterogeneous and at times even contradictory particular desires. Quote, drifting away from the consideration of the desire for the one and being, I mean God, men entered into the diversity and multiplicity of bodily desires, writes St. Athanasius. Correlatively, man stops having a single and stable pleasure so as to know the variety of sensual pleasures. Quote, enamored by pleasure, the soul sets about procuring its it for itself in very many ways, notes St. Athanasius again. Being dragged away on all sides by its various sensual desires, the soul is dispersed on all sides and is divided. The noose spreads out in numerous directions, flowing and being scattered at every moment toward what pleases the senses. Evagrius notes, quote, The noose roams when impassioned, and is uncontrollable when it achieves the constitutive materials of its desires. Carried off by the unceasingly renewed maelstrom of desires, the intellect or noose loses the peace and stability it possessed while it exercised its normal activity of the divine contemplation. It finds itself relentlessly led along in an unceasing and troubled flux. The soul is divided up not only by the multiplicity of desires that occupy it, but also by the duality whose mark is the knowledge of good and evil acquired by the soul through its sin. Quote, as man hastens to think of good, he immediately remembers evil. For as a result of Adam's disobedience, his memory finds itself sundered as in duplex thought. Note St. Diodocus of Photiki. Taken by central, central desires and pleasures, man, generally speaking, completely alienates himself in them. Those who commit themselves to corruptible and sensual pleasures exhaust all the desires of their soul and the flesh, and thus become holy flesh, writes St. Gregory Palamas. From that point on, they are subjected to the limits and vicissitudes of the flesh. The power of sin, through pleasure, thoroughly carries off the soul to the misery of the flesh so close at hand notes St. Maximus. From man's enslavement to the flesh, through pleasure come corruption and death. Deceived at the beginning by the illusion of pleasure, we preferred death to life. Again, St. Maximus says, pleasure is the mother of death. Though spiritual in, its, in his original nature, man turns himself into a natural and carnal being by the perversion of his desire, and losing the defining mark of his essential nature, becomes like unto animals. Brute and irrational instinct, by driving men to impurity, renders them 
oblivious to human nature. The soul hunkers over bodily pleasures like beasts over their fodder, St. Gregory of Nyssa, Life of Moses. Having turned his desirative power away from God so as to pursue sensible realities with an eye to finding in them a more accessible and immediate pleasure, man finds his hopes for pleasure profoundly dashed. As soon as he experiences sensual pleasures, pain makes its grand entrance. Man in his original state was unaware of suffering. The spiritual delight he experienced in his union with the Holy Trinity was completely free from this. But ceasing through sin to be spiritual in order to become sensual, pleasure is inevitably accompanied henceforth by pain. Quote, man learnt by experience that every pleasure of a surety has pain as its successor, remarks St. Maximus. Man experiences here not only physical pain, but also, above all, a mental, moral suffering taken the form of sorrow. The sorrow of the soul is the end of pleasure of the senses. For the soul's sorrow is elicited by this pleasure, notes the scholarist of the questions to Thalassius. By turning his noose at the same time as his desirative power toward the sensible and investing it in it, man provides the intellect noose with an object that no longer corresponds to the intellect's function and is no longer commensurate with the latter's nature. St. Maximus writes, quote, The noose acts contrary to nature when it attaches itself to the superficial, that is, what is sensible and bodily, and from that moment it generates sorrow of soul, being thrashed without respite by the whip of the conscience from questions to Thalassius. Dr. Lachey continues, this sorrow, however, also arises from the fact that the desired object and the pleasure obtained are themselves also incommensurate with the desired of faculties, nature, and the pleasure for which it is destined. We have seen that man's desire was created with God in mind, St. Nicholas Cabasila specifies, quote, our capacity for desire has been adapted and proportioned to the immensity of this object of our desires from the life in Christ. He says, in addition, that God has matched our soul, our desire of power, and our whole being with himself. The human heart was created in function of Christ as a large box, vast enough to contain God himself. Likewise, we have seen that man by, by nature has a capacity for delight commensurate with the divine goods promised him. But having turned his power of desire away from God so as to orientate it towards sensible objects, man offers nothing but finite, partial, limited, and relative objects to this power, continuing meanwhile to desire the infinite and absolute, since the faculty of desire did not change its nature by the fall but only its orientation, and remains commensurate to its normal and original divine object. Man is inevitably bound to be unsatisfied. No worldly reality, necessarily finite, can respond to the desire for the infinite within him. Quote, we observe that in nature nothing can gratify our capacity of desire. Rather, everything is found lacking in its regard, observes St. Nicholas Cabasilas. Only limited and fleeting pleasures 
respond any more to the desire for infinite delight that persists in man as belonging to his nature. Hardly have they been realized. They leave behind in man a painful void. Nothing here below satisfies. Nothing assuages our desires. We are always thirsty, as if we never reached the object of our aspirations. For the human soul possesses an infinite thirst, and how could the world that passes away suffice? This is what the Lord said to the Samaritan woman, Everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again. John 4.13 Being disappointed after satisfying each of his central desires and continuing to feel in the depths of his being a lack and an inadequacy between the reality attained and his fundamental aspirations, which he feels meanwhile without knowing the real meaning of them, man runs from object to object, exhausting the different spheres, spheres of this world, one after the other, without ever finding the definitive end of his quest. St. Nicholas observes, quote, No matter the goods which one has been granted, even if someone might possess the universality of goods, he looks further afield, and beyond the goods present, pursues absent goods. In short, nothing assuages our desire, nothing quenches our thirst for joy, nothing fully satisfies our capacity for delight. End of quote. Fallen man thus lives in a state of permanent frustration, of perpetual ontological dissatisfaction. Even if from time to time the satisfaction of some desire gives him for an instant the illusion of having found what he was looking for, the object of desire that he had taken for a moment as an absolute ends of revealing itself to him in its limits and relative character, then the entire void separating him from the true absolute is revealed. Sorrow then intensifies in his heart, being the expression of his disquiet, in the face of the void he senses and the manifestation of the deep frustration he experiences. Man believes he can remedy this frustration by the very means which in truth is its cause. Instead of recognizing that the void he senses is the absence of God in him and that consequently only God can fill it, he wants to see therein the call to possess and delight in new sensible objects that he believes could satisfy this void. So, as to avoid the pain following every pleasure, and to put an end to the deep frustration of his desire for infinite delight, fallen man perseveres in his search for new pleasures, not resting in his unbridled running after desires. He gathers and multiplies his pleasures in an attempt to reconstitute the totality, continuity and absoluteness for which he is nostalgic, believing in his delusion to find the infinite in the indefinite. St. Maximus, calling to mind the relationship of pain to pleasure in fallen man's sensuality, writes the following, quote, Since pleasures disappears with the means that produce it, and since suffering always succeeds the experience of pleasure, man threw himself all the more violently toward pleasure because he was trying to avoid suffering. He thought by this tactic that he could separate the one from the other and keep for himself pleasure alone, joined to his love of self. 
and completely unencumbered by pain. But under the influence of passion, he was unaware that it is naturally impossible for pleasure to come without pain. For the sorrow that engenders pain has been entangled with pleasure, even if those who feel it seem to forget it as soon as the pleasure bears the pleasure bears or carries sorrow away under the influence of the passion. End of quote. By striving to avoid pain, by renewing and multiplying pleasures, man, on the contrary, only ends up increasing his suffering. As St. Maximus remarks, quote, In a certain way, we in fact augment our sorrow, which according to nature dedicates us to pain, by striving to ally, allay this pain with pleasure. Wishing to escape from the sensation of pain, we flee to pleasure when we try to relieve the nature oppressed by pain's violence. But by endeavoring to dull the movements of pain through pleasure, we reinforce all the more the support that these movements have given to pleasure. Incapable as we are of having in us pleasure freed from pain and sorrows. End of in other words, and paradoxically so, when man sets off in search of pleasure, he always finds in the end only pain in all its forms. St. Maximus mentions many times that man in his quest for delight inevitably misses his goal, to the degree of not even being able to delight in sensation itself as he had wished. Man's attempt to find happiness outside of God was doomed to fail from the start. Necessarily so, since this endeavor, in fact, was an impossibility, as St. Maximus emphasizes. Quote, this undertaking to possess the gifts of God independent of God, in preference to God, and not according to the will of God, was an impossibility. In this regard, one can ask how Adam and those who have imitated him have been able to trade the divine beatitude to which their very nature destined them for the incommensurably lesser pleasures able to be taken from sensible reality, with all the negative consequences that entailed. After comparing sensual goods with spiritual ones, St. John Chrysostom can only see a manifestation of madness in the attempt that prefers the former to the latter. He writes from his homilies on Genesis chapter 1-4, Pleasure is only a fleeting delight. Yea, pleasure quickly takes flight, and we cannot tie it down even for a few moments. For such is the destiny of human and sensible things. Hardly do we possess them, and they escape us. They offer nothing solid or assured, nothing fixed or permanent. They flow away more rapidly than rivers of water, and leave empty and ignorant those who search after them with such burning zeal. On the contrary, however, spiritual goods present us altogether different character. They are firm, assured, constant, and eternal. Is it not then a strange folly to exchange immutable things for transitory delight, a mortal bliss for pleasures of the moment, and true and eternal felicity for quick and frivolous sensual joys? End of quote. End of Pathology of Desire and Pleasure. Chapter 3, 
Pathology of Fallen Man Continued, Section 3, Pathology of Aggressiveness. Alongside the desirative power in the human soul is found the aggressive or irascible power. This faculty belongs man's very nature and has been a constituent part of the human soul since his creation. The primary function of man's aggressiveness in his healthy state, the original Adam, the man restored in Christ, is to oppose everything able to turn man away from God and the path of deification to which God has destined him by nature. The fathers say that God put this faculty in man's soul in order to permit him to fight against evil and more precisely to repel the attacks of the demons, to combat temptations, to refuse and bring to naught the wicked thoughts suggested to him by his spiritual enemies. Adam and Eve were tempted in paradise by the devil, and they could have used this faculty to keep the commandment God had given them. In other words, to stick to the path on which God had put them when he created them, to remain united to God and to grow spiritually in him. By this faculty, God put in their souls the capacity to withstand temptation, to reject the evil one's suggestions, and thus avoid falling into evil. St. Diodocus of Photiki says, quote, A controlled and sense of power is a weapon implanted in our nature by God. End of quote. If Eve had made use of it against the serpent, she would not have been dominated by impassioned pleasure. St. Hezekius the priest also notes that, quote, This faculty has been given us by God as armor and as a bow. End of quote. From chapters on vigilance. And he speaks of implementing it in a just manner, according to the nature of the irascible element against Satan, the serpent. St. Gregory of Nyssa writes in more detail, quote, Then indignation and anger and hatred must be as watchdogs to be aroused only against attacking sins. They must follow their natural impulse only against the thief, and the enemy who is creeping in to plunder the divine treasure chamber, and who comes only for that, that he may steal and mangle and destroy. End of quote from On Virginity. St. Nikitas Stathatos mentions similarly, quote, If desire and reason strive according to nature toward the divine, anger is a weapon of justice. For these against the serpent who alone murmurs within the conscience and suggests that it sample the pleasures of the flesh. Evagrius likewise clarifies, the nature of the soul's irascible power is to combat the demons, and the use one must make of the irascible path, colon, to combat the serpent with hatred. End of quote. And good aggression is a faculty of the soul fitting for the destruction of bad thoughts, he notes elsewhere. By this faculty, used in conformity with its original nature, the spiritual man can keep to the path of union with God without deviation, pushing aside all obstacles. The soul, says St. Maximus, uses its irascible power to defend the object of its pursuits with love. This is why he counsels that our reason be set in motion to seek God and that the power of aggression fight to guard it. Thanks to the activity of the irascible power, man in particular can keep his desire always aimed toward God, hindering it from turning toward sensible realities 
or the temptation seeking to lead it away. Thus, St. Macarius writes, quote, When the passions rise up, wise men do not listen to them, but they wax wroth against their wicked desires and declare war on them. End of quote. This attitude is a habitual and necessary disposition of the spiritual man, observes St. Diodocus of Photiki, who affirms for this reason that anger, in this normal usage corresponding to its nature, renders the greatest services to the soul. St. John Cassian develops the same teaching. The spiritual man can keep himself spiritually pure thanks to the combat he wages with the aid of his aggressive power. Abba Isaiah writes, quote, There is in the spirit an anger in conformity with nature, and without anger there would be no purity in man if he did not become incensed at all that the enemy sows in him. End quote. The aggressive power proves itself to be especially useful in prayer when, in order to arrive at pure contemplation, man must reject all the thoughts seeking to turn him from God. Evagrius writes on this subject, quote, When you are tempted, do not pray until you have addressed with anger some words to the one who grips you. If you say something with anger to the thoughts, you confound the representations suggested by your adversaries and make them disappear. Through the good use of his aggressiveness, man, resisting on all sides the test of temptation, reveals the degree and the true value of his attachment to God. Again, Abba Isaiah writes, There is in the spirit a hatred in conformity with nature, and without hatred for hostility, honor does not reveal itself to the soul. The second normal and natural use of the aggressive power is to permit man to fight, in order to obtain the spiritual goods for which he strives by nature, and so as to attain to the kingdom of heaven whither he is destined. For according to the words of Christ, quote, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and men of violence take it by force, Matthew eleven twelve, And the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone enters it violently, Luke sixteen sixteen. This power then exists also to enable man to make all the required efforts so as to accomplish his task. In other words, so as to grow spiritually and acquire the likeness of God. For this reason, Evagrius writes, The rational soul acts in accordance with nature when her irascible part battles for virtue. This faculty permits man to orient, it, orient and lift up all his faculties to God. First of all, his mind. Thus, St. Maximus counsels, quote, May the entire mind, nous, order itself with God in mind, drawn taut by the irascible power like some string. The irascible faculty also allows the heart to mobilize all the might of its desirative power toward God, to quote, reinforce desire, and, as St. Maximus says, to focus the movement of desire toward divine love. Beyond this, the faculty permits the heart to fight for the spiritual delight at which it aims. Thus, Evagrius affirms, quote, the, na the, the natural mind, the nature of mind, no matter what kind. But when man has turned away from divine goods and thus been deprived of spiritual delight, his irascible faculty busies itself with achieving and safeguarding carnal and sensual pleasure. 
we have seen that the experience of pain, physical but in addition and above all, psychological and moral, inevitably follows the experience of sensual pleasure. Thus, the irascible power is used by fallen man not only in a fight to obtain and hold on to pleasure, but also to flee from this pain, and in general to avoid all displeasure and suffering. The realization of this contra-natural goal implies a second form of perversion in the irascible power, ceasing to use it in the combat against the demons and their temptations, since he henceforth assents to their suggestions and does their will, man turns this power against his fellow men in the degree to which he sees in them either obstacles to the realization of his sensual desires and the obtaining of the pleasures he has in sight, or causes of suffering relative to the egotistical love he bears toward himself. We have preferred material and profane things to the commandment of love, and since we have attached ourselves to these, we fight against men, whereas we ought to prefer love for all men above visible things, explains St. Maximus the Confessor, holding self-love as chiefly guilty, which provokes us against others like wild beasts in order to obtain a bit of pleasure. Evagrius, for his part, insists on the instigative role played by the demons that lead us away toward the desires of the world and constrain the irascible part going against nature to fight against men. The fathers are again of one accord here in emphasizing the contra-natural and irrational character of this use of the irascible power that corresponds to a true perversion of this faculty, diverted from its natural and normal purpose and turned around toward an incompatible goal. Evagrius expresses himself in these very terms when he counsels, quote, do not go so far in diverting the usage you make of the irascible power so as to make use of it against nature by growing angry with your brother. Nature of the irascible power is to fight with pleasure in mind, understanding thereby spiritual pleasure and the bliss that follows it. To fight for pleasure means to fight in order to acquire it as well as to preserve it, the second function of the aggressive appearing here closely related to the first. This is why Evagrius writes further, quote, the angels suggest to us spiritual pleasure and the bliss that follows, so as to exhort us to turn our irascibility against the demons, end of quote. When one exercises the aggressive power in this way, it takes the form of a virtuous, wise, and holy anger, whose usage the psalmist recommends when he says, be angry, but sin not, Psalm 4.4. When man thus makes use of this faculty in conformity with its nature and purpose, he is wise and walks healthily. Meanwhile, through sin, man perverts this faculty, turning it from its good and normal usage so as to make an irrational use of it against nature. Thus this faculty becomes ill. The impure, irascible faculty is a power of the sick soul, writes Evagrius. Instead of waging war to obtain and protect spiritual goods, the aggressive faculty, in fact, fights from now on to acquire and keep the sensible pseudo-goods to which man has turned his intellect and to which he has attached his desire. 
the irascible power enrolls itself completely in the service of the sensual desires that animate fallen man and dedicates itself to the search and keeping of the pleasure which is tied to them. The fathers thus often elude to the fundamental relationship that exists between aggressiveness and pleasure. St. Dorotheus of Gaza, for example, affirms that anger is caused, quote, especially by the love of pleasure. In fallen man, aggressiveness keeps its function of fighting for pleasure, since, as Evagrius says, its nature lies in fighting with pleasure. It provides us with the means of showing anger against the serpent, but we have used this anger against our neighbor, observes St. John Climacus bitterly. And Abba Isaiah notes, quote, the anger in conformity with nature for us is changed into anger against our neighbor for all vain and irrational matters. And hatred in conformity with nature for us has been turned against nature. It makes us hate and despise our neighbor, end of quote. Say Hezekias the priest likewise speaks of the anger directed contrary to nature toward men. St. Nikitas Stathatos, having remarked, if man arms his anger only against the serpent of old, he is moved according to nature, also affirms the unnatural character of the new orientation imprinted by sin in this movement of the soul. He proclaims its irrational character. If man arms his anger against his fellow men, then he is not moved reasonably, but lives contrary to reason. That is, here again, insanely and madly. Matter yet is man's use of his irascible power against God. Although this power has been placed in man to enable him to fight against everything seeking to distance him from God, by sin man goes so far as to do the opposite, using it against everything able to bring him closer to God and sometimes even against God himself. Thus, St. Barsanufius makes the following point. Instead of hatred according to God, which hates evil, has the devil not cast into us the perverse hatred that hates good and God himself? One can now note that the same principle of economy that we underlined with regard to the desirative power is valid for the aggressive power. There is a single irascible faculty in man, subject to two uses, more specifically to two contradictory and incompatible orientations. Thus, St. Gregory of Nyssa observes, human nature in every way chooses between two contrary directions. Evagrius also similarly mentions, the nature of the irascible power is to fight against pleasure, whatever it may be. But as we've shown, One of these orientations corresponds to the natural purpose of the faculty being normal and constituting its health, whereas the other diverts it from its normal purpose, making it act contrary to its nature and constituting its illness. As regards the orientation it receives, the aggressive power is in fact linked to the orientation man gives to the two other principal powers of his soul, his intellect and desire to the realization of whose goals the aggressive power contributes. St. Nikitas Stathatos explains this nicely. He writes, quote, The aggressive power is an intermediary between the desire and reason of the soul. It is like a weapon in each of its movements against nature or according to nature. 
when desire and reason move according to nature toward the divine? The aggressive power is in each a weapon of justice against the one serpent who whispers to them and proposes that they take part in the pleasures of the flesh and delight in the glory of men. But when they turn away from their natural movement, when they distort their power, when they drift from the consideration of divine things to human things, the aggressive power is a weapon of injustice serving sin. Then desire and reason combat and attack by means of aggressiveness those who seek to overthrow their impulses and lusts. End of quote from Nikitas Tisthatos' Centuries. To continue, we shall see that in fallen man, the sick and aggressive power invests itself primarily in the passion of anger, in the broad sense the fathers give this word. Thus, we shall examine its numerous pathological effects. Section 4, Pathology of Freedom Man was created free that is, having at his disposal a free will and having the power to make decisions for himself without being subject to any necessity. Freedom is one of the characteristics of the divine nature, and by creating man in his image, God endowed man with this property. St. Gregory of Nyssa remarks, quote, If some necessity directed human life, the image in this regard would be a lie, since it would be altered by a difference with its model. How could one call the image of sovereign nature that which is under the yoke, the bondage of necessities? That which was created in every respect in the image of the divinity had to possess in its nature a free and independent will. To continue, by conferring freedom upon human nature, God desired to have it participate in it, his own perfection. St. Gregory of Nyssa says, it is by his freedom that man is deiform, for independence and autonomy are proper to divine bliss. He even goes so far as to say that by freedom man is equal to God. These last affirmations indicate that man is in the image of God, essentially by his freedom. They do not contradict the traditional notion according to which man is in God's image by his spirit. Freedom is in fact a faculty of the mind itself. The will, as St. Maximus notes, is the will of the spiritual soul. Its free movement characterizes the nature of the life of the spiritual nature. And St. Gregory of Nyssa remarks in the same vein, quote, the freedom of choice, a faculty free and exempt from servitude, is founded on the independence of our intellect. And a quote, by making man free, God desired that the good acquired by the man who unites himself to God by realizing the likeness, might truly belong to man. God, as St. Gregory Nazazine teaches, quote, has honored man by conferring freedom on him so that the good might belong as proper to him who chooses it no less than to him who placed the first fruits of good in nature, end of quote. To the con common objection that God should not have made men free so that they could not fall into evil, St. Irenaeus responds, quote, In such a hypothesis, communion with God would be without value, and there would be nothing desirable in the good acquired by them without movement or care or application, which would arise automatically and without effort. Possessing 
good automatically and not by free choice. They would not even understand the excellence of the good and could not even delight in it. End of quote. St. Macarius, on his part, remarks, If you do not attribute to him a nature endowed with freedom, you render man truly unworthy of praise. Indeed, he who is good and excellent by nature is not worthy of praise. Yea, the good that does not proceed from free choice is not worthy of praise. End of quote. And St. Gregory of Nyssa writes, That which was created in every respect in the image of the divinity had to possess in its nature a free and independent will so that the participation in the divine benefits might be the recompense of his virtue. Man could not have truly become God had he been lacking one of the divine nature's essential characteristics, freedom. On the other hand, he could not have really been virtuous if the virtues had in some way been imposed on him, if he had not acquired them by the free opening up of his will to God's sanctifying grace. Where there is necessity, there cannot be virtue. Notes St. John Damascene. In the normal state of his creation, freedom for man consists in being determined by himself alone, that is, in acting according to nature. Freedom is identity and conformity with nature, writes St. Gregory of Nyssa. St. Maximus says more or less the same thing, that freedom for man consists in harmonizing the disposition of his personal or gnomic will with his natural will that strives toward the good and the fulfillment of nature in God, who is its beginning and end. In other words, freedom consists for each person in constantly making the choice for the good and always opting for God. We have shown that it is man's nature to strive toward God so as to become God. Man can thus be himself, to act in conformity with his nature, and to be determined by nothing exterior or foreign to him, by keeping all of his faculties in conformity with their nature, directed toward God, and by realizing the Logos's likeness. Likewise, we have shown that man's true nature rests in the virtues. Through them, he fulfills in himself the image of God by realizing the likeness. In living according to the virtues, man not only leads a life in which he is himself acting in accordance to what he is and being moved by his own nature without being led by anything exterior or foreign that imposes itself on him or acts parasitically upon his will. What is more, he acts in conformity with God himself, participating in his sovereign will and his absolute freedom. The man united to God through virtue is thus deified and is free with God's freedom. This is, quote, the glorious liberty of the children of God, of which St. Paul speaks in Romans 8.21. St. Gregory of Nyssa thus teaches that true freedom for man resides in three principles, which imply one another and basically mean the same thing, the likeness to God, the life in virtue, and conformity to nature. He writes on the soul and the resurrection, quote, Freedom is the resemblance to that which has no master, to the sovereign, a resemblance given us by God in the beginning. Since then, on the one hand, freedom is identity with one's own nature and conformity with it. It follows that everything that is free is united with what is similar to it. But on the other hand, as virtue is without master, 
it likewise follows that freedom resides therein, for freedom is without master. So, as the divine nature is the source of all virtue, those who have been purified of evil are united in God in order that God might be all in all. End of quote. To continue, thus man can realize his freedom in the plentitude of its perfection by conforming himself to the divine commandments that show him how to grow in virtue and how to be united more and more closely to God. For this reason, St. Mark the ascetic calls the commandments commandments of freedom, work of freedom, or following St. James, see James 2.12, the law of liberty, and St. Augustine writes, there is but one true freedom, that of the blessed and of those who adhere to the divine law. This follows the teaching of Jesus Christ, quote, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. John 8.31 Freedom is the will of a rational soul ready to move toward its object, says St. Diodokos of Photoki. This freedom was that of Adam in paradise. His will was achieving its natural purpose, being to strive toward what is better, and was spontaneously born to the good in an untroubled movement. Knowing the true good and wishing to know nothing else, man moved toward it without hesitation. He did not weigh the good and the bad, the pro and the contra, the better and the worse. Knowing where true good lay and absolutely refusing evil, man did not choose in the usual sense of this word. He did not examine several possibilities, nor did he deliberate. He spontaneously went to the good, realizing by this use of his freedom the likeness to his divine archetype. For as St. John Damascene says, quote, it must be known that one can speak of intention in God, but not properly of choice. God does not deliberate. Deliberation belongs to ignorance, and one does not deliberate when one knows. End of quote. An exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. One can apply the saying of the prophet Isaiah to Adam in his state of innocence, quote, Before he knows how to reject evil, the child shall choose the good. For before the child knows good or evil, he will refuse evil to choose good. End of quote. Isaiah 7, 15-16. Dr. Larche continues, God has created Adam on the path to deification and thus spontaneously aiming toward the good. He kept to this path freely, since besides this possibility of remaining in the good and progressing in it upheld by divine grace, Adam had that of abandoning the good, of going to evil and separating himself from God through a deliberate choice. He was capable of giving in to Satan's assault or of not giving in and had the faculty for this. Yet God had given him along with his, this freedom the knowledge of its good use and of its normal function. He had shown him the means of exercising it and all its perfection by the commandment not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2.17. St. Athanasios writes, quote, Knowing that man's will could incline in both directions, he took the initiative and imposed on him a law. He strengthened the grace that he had given him. Man, however, was constantly tempted 
by the devil to use his freedom in a way other than how God, who desired man to be really free and to come to know the true good in the integral realization of his self and the perfect blossoming of his nature, had directed. Besides, as long as Adam did not give in to it, temptation played a positive role. It allowed that deification might be really desired by man and that he might thus make manifest its true value. St. John Damascene writes, It was necessary that man first be tempted, untried and untempted. Man merits no title. Led to perfection by temptation in the keeping of the commandment, he would have come to know incorruption as the prize of his virtue. It is in temptation that freedom is truly revealed as such. On one hand, freedom's other possibilities are revealed therein. On the other, the will is thereby tested and shows the degree of its attachment to God by the force of the refusal it gives to everything seeking to distance it from him. Despite all the good that God offered him, man gave in to the diabolical temptation. He used his free will to turn away from God, to take part in the evil suggested to him by the devil, and to introduce it into himself and into all creation. All the fathers insist on the fact that evil, in man but also in the world, is a product of man's wrong use of freedom, that it was conceived, imagined, invented, created, and realized by a wrong choice of his free will, his personal, or according to St. Maximus's terminology, gnomic will. Evil does not exist outside of choice, affirms St. Gregory of Nyssa. It is free choice that gives evil its substance. It is the false usage of our free will that has engendered the impulses toward evil, he affirms further. The responsibility for evils thus falls upon our carelessness, which has chosen what is worst in place of what is best. St. Anthony also notes with regard to the evils affecting fallen man, quote, everything, therefore, that was outside our nature came from our free will. In turning away from God, Adam ceases to possess a freedom like that of his divine archetype. He is no longer free with the liberty of God. The serpent's promise is fulfilled. Man is like God. He indeed gains a form of freedom, allowing him to make decisions with reference only to himself and giving him the impression that he is absolutely autonomous, that he is self-sufficient and can define himself according to his own estimation. He makes of himself by means of this freedom a God claiming to be totally independent of the true God. But man is thus profoundly deluded. The freedom remaining after the fall is in reality a freedom that destroys man, although man believes that he finds his fulfillment in it. Through this fallen freedom, man is like a God, but is not a God, whereas his original God-oriented freedom permitted him, on the contrary, to become a God in truth by grace. Man, in his sin, makes a pathological use of the freedom that was given to him so as to turn voluntarily toward God. St. Athanasius says, quote, His soul does not know that it is made not merely to move, but to move in the right direction. For this is why the word of the apostle assures us, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. 1 Corinthians 6.12 
and against the pagans. St. Maximus demonstrates that through sin, man disassociates his free or gnomic will from his natural will, bringing both into disharmony, and that through this he deviates from his nature. He turns with all his faculties of his being away from a life in conformity with his nature so as to lead a contra-natural life. He turns away from the good so as to enter into all forms of evil and thus destroy himself. When in the beginning the alluring devil deceived man by the seduction of pleasure, he separated our will from God and from others. By destroying our will's upright character, he sundered our nature in this way, tore it apart among a multitude of opinions and imaginings. In the course of time, he made as law the search for and discovery of every sort of evil, aided in this by our powers. And so that evil might remain in all men, he supports it in them on this irreconcilable opposition of the will that had permitted him insidiously to persuade man once to turn aside from his natural movement. Urged against nature by his free will under the path of evil, man has since then been led astray by it. As St. Gregory of Nyssa notes, quote, if the creature acts according to nature, the change in it is unceasingly produced in the direction of what is better. But if it has turned away from the right path, it is led away by an uninterrupted movement to the opposite state. From Catechorical Orations. However, as we have seen, Adam in his original state desired to know only God and to live only so as to be like unto him. His free will was in harmony with his natural will. He did not deviate from his nature's norm or logos, being spontaneously directed toward the good, but through the acquisition of sin, by sin, of the knowledge of good and evil, the exercise of his free will ceases to be simple. It is dis dispersed among uncertain deliberations and loses itself in the confused duality of good and evil. Obsessed with the passions and deceived by his imagination, man in truth no longer knows the good immediately. Confusing good and evil and often taking the evil for good and the good for evil, he is subject to the constant risk of being deceived in his choices. This deliberative freedom is an altered form of the freedom that man possessed in the beginning in his union with God. It is even the negation of it, since fallen man, having disassociated it from the natural will that aims at good, uses it so as to accomplish evil. He thus makes it serve paradoxically to establish his own servitude, Having deviated from his own nature, man is no longer moved by himself by what is foreign to him. He is alienated to what is contra-natural, that is, to evil. Through the perverted use of his freedom, man becomes the slave of sin. Captive to the desires and sensual pleasures to which he has turned. Subject to the false divinities that he has made for himself of creatures. The fathers never cease to show how fallen man, though believing himself to be free or to set himself free, is in fact a slave. The end of this misplaced freedom, quote, is a hard slavery, remarks St. Isaac the Syrian in Ascetical Homily 42. Fallen man lives, in fact, tied to the flesh, dominated by its law, 
being enslaved to the senses, suffering from the tyranny of his desires, subjugated to the search for pleasure and the fear of suffering. He is the servant of his vices, in short, the slave of his passions. These latter wield over him a true tyranny to which his soul is captive. In this state, man is no longer himself. He's completely taken over by the passions brought into him by his sin. Moved by these tendencies foreign to his original and essential nature, man is alienated. It is no longer proper to speak of him acting, but of the law of sin dwelling in him. Romans 7.17 and following. Being the slave of his passions, man is also the slave of the devil and the demons. He is not only influenced, but even dominated and crushed by the evil one's tyranny. St. Isaac remarks, He who does not submit his own will to God's submits himself to his adversary. St. Macarius thus describes this double slavery from which man suffers on account of the passions and the powers of evil. Quote, Since the fall and the expulsion from the earthly paradise, man is bound by a double set of chains. First comes from life itself and its day-to-day -day concerns from the love for all the visible things. On the inside, the soul is enveloped, circumvented, and incarcerated by the, by the maleficent spirits that keep it in darkness. End of quote. There's obviously a direct relation between these two sets of chains. Because man lives in evil, the demonic powers have such a power over him, and through his passions he opens himself up to them and causes them to live in him. Not much of man's original freedom remains in this state, whereas in God and in virtue man moved according to his nature and took part in God's sovereign will. Once he turns away from him and lives contrary to nature, it is no longer truly man who acts, but a foreign nature that has taken possession of him. This nature consists of the passions that through sin have covered up his true nature, tyrannizing it and completely taking it over. Section 5, Pathology of Memory. Memory was given to man at his creation so that by it he might continually be able to remember God and thus be united to him permanently in mind and in heart. Quote, we have received the memory so as to bear Christ in us, writes St. Nicholas Cabasilas in his Life in Christ. The remembrance of God then appears as a norm for man. Thus St. Macarius writes, the Christian must always have the remembrance of God. And St. Gregory Nazazine, we must remember God more often than we breathe. And if one can say this, we must do nothing other than this. On a primary level, the remembrance of God implies the remembrance of the commandments by which man attaches himself to God, by doing his will. The remembrance of the commandment given by God in paradise to Adam and Eve, and the remembrance of Christ's commandments, for the man restored by the incarnate word. Consequently, it implies the memory of the virtues, which leaves no room for the passions. At this last point, as this last point shows, the remembrance of God is also the remembrance of God's benefits, through which remembrance we give thanks to God for these. St. Mark the ascetic is particularly insistent on this. 
as what follows, quote, letter to Nicholas. Behold, what ought to be the point of departure for a profitable journey according to God? You must always go over in your memory and guard in unceasing meditation the remembrance of the goodness of God who has ordered your life's course according to his design, of his benefits that aim at your soul's salvation. Do not let your memory be darkened by vice, the source of indifference, neither lose the remembrance of the multitude and extent of his graces, and consequently spend the rest of time without profit in ingratitude. For this ceaseless remembrance pricks the heart like a thorn, at all times pushing it to confession, humility, thanksgiving with a crushed soul, great zeal as regards the good, so as to offer in return a way of life, profitable conduct, and all virtue according to God. He who does not allow himself to fall into the forgetfulness of such benefits directs himself toward all the good ascesis of virtue and toward every work of justice with an ever-sustained ardor, always disposed to carrying out God's will. End of quote. This form of the remembrance of God naturally leads to its main form, that which the fathers often call continual prayer. For the mind that demands on us a work that ought to satisfy its need of activity, St. Diodocus of Photiki emphasizes that this prayer is the only occupation completely responding to the mind's aim. At the same time, prayer constitutes its proper activity, the only activity that corresponds to the mind's nature. Quote, prayer prepares the intellect to put its own powers into action, notes Evagrius, who remarks further, prayer is the activity fitting to the intellect, in other words, the better and adequate use of it. Adam, who lived in prayer, put into practice this uninterrupted remembrance of God in paradise. In like manner, the saints, who in Christ restore the first condition of Adam and approach perfection, continually having in their heart the remembrance of the Lord Jesus. Through this continual memory of God, man can in truth unite himself to God in conformity with the end goal of his nature. Spiritual union is perpetual recollection, writes St. Isaac the Syrian. By the remembrance of God, man is strengthened in his keeping and practice of the commandments. In other words, he can preserve himself from the passions and cultivate in himself the virtues. The remembrance of God in particular is the condition for the love of God, whose property is to arouse and to make grow, always going hand in hand with this remembrance. This is true above all in its most perfected form, continual prayer, but also in the remembrance of God's benefits. Thus, St. Mark the ascetic counsels, quote, keep before your eyes the benefits received from your birth until now. Be they bodily or spiritual, go over them and meditate on them according to what is written, forget not all his benefits, Psalm 102.2, in order that they may bring you to the love of God quickly and easily, in order that your heart, at the remembrance of these benefits, and even more so spurred on from on high, might spontaneously be wounded with love and desire. End of quote. The constant remembrance of God in prayer also constitutes for man the mode of access to theoria, contemplation, that 
as St. Isaac says, finds therein material on which it is given to it to be founded. St. Callistos II, the patriarch, says similarly that it makes the divine rays shine in the purified noose. Up to the highest degrees of the spiritual life, the memory accompanies the activity of the mind. And it is even in his memory, says St. Isaac, that man is raised up higher than nature in the theoria, the knowledge, vision of God that the spirit communicates to him. End of quote. See the life of St. Joseph the Hesychist, a cave dweller. To continue, through the memory of God, man keeps God in the recesses of his mind and causes him to abide in his heart. St. Basil writes, This is to house God, to have God dwelling in oneself through remembrance. Thus we become the temple of God when earthly cares do not interrupt the continuity of this remembrance. End of quote. The remembrance of God is thereby a source of intense joy for the man who possesses it and gives birth in the soul to an ineffable happiness, as says the psalmist, quote, I remembered God and rejoiced. Psalm 76.3 In the abiding remembrance of God, man does nothing but think on the one thing necessary and leads an existence entirely focused on God in conformity with his nature's end goal. Put otherwise, the memory of God implies the forgetting of the world, the absence of every sensual and worldly recollection. It likewise implies for man the forgetting of oneself. The spiritual man, St. Isaac says, quote, forgets himself. He forgets his nature. He no longer remembers anything of this world. But he does not cease meditating on and conceiving everything that reveals God's grandeur, he has memory linked with the type of life he leads. He does not think of the things of this world. He does not remember them. Seneca Homily 85. When the memory of God has made the soul its pasture, it wipes away every other remembrance, he concludes in summary. In the original and normal state of the completely unified human nature, man's memory, being wholly occupied with the remembrance of God, was simple and homogenous. All man's thoughts are focused therein on what for his mind constitutes the sole object of attention. St. John Cassianos notes that in the remembrance of God, man fixes all his attention on a single goal on which he actively makes to converge all the thoughts that arise in his mind. The memory henceforth appears stable and motionless and knows stillness, Hezekiah. With the memory occupying itself totally with the remembrance of God and thus being stripped of every form and figure, the heart is pure. Thanks to the memory of God, man safeguards himself against the foreign thoughts that the evil one suggests to him. It excludes every bad thought and does not permit evil to manifest itself under any circumstance. It is a weapon against the demons, permitting man not only to escape their attacks unharmed, but also to master and drive them away. While the memory used thus in accord with nature is in good health, through sin it acts against nature and becomes ill. Its illness, as for the previously studied faculties, consists of a perversion, more precisely an inversion of its activity. 
Although in human nature's normal state, the memory is used exclusively and conformably to the finality of its nature for the remembrance of God and the good, thereby being ignorant of every sensible reality and every evil. Through sin, it becomes, on the contrary, contra-natural, forgetful of God and the good, and recalls evil and sensible realities. This illness of the memory naturally affects the mind, which is its organ. To the entire extent to which it has become forgetful of God, the mind is alienated in an activity foreign to it and comes to know spiritual suffocation and death. Thus, St. Isaac writes, What happens to the fish when it leaves the water happens to the mind when it departs from the memory of God and is scattered amid the memory of the world. Sedical Homily 43. All the faculties that depend directly on the memory likewise suffer from the pathological effects of the memory's illness. Thus, St. Maximus considers that the forgetfulness of God and of the good along with ignorance is man's sickness in the rational part of the soul. The forgetfulness of God along with the ignorance of God, with which it goes hand in hand, plays a central role in man's fall. For this reason, St. Gregory Palamas sees the essence of the ancestral sin in the abandonment of the remembrance and contemplation of God and St. Mark the ascetic notes, Scripture says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. Proverbs 15.11 Here it speaks of the heart's ignorance and of forgetfulness. Ignorance is Sheol and forgetfulness is Abaddon. And both kill man spiritually. We've already noticed, noticed that St. Mark the ascetic and following him, St. John Damascene, consider that forgetfulness along with ignorance and spiritual negligence, are the three giants of the devil, from which proceed all the passions and evils that affect fallen man. To repeat, we have already noticed that St. Mark the ascetic and following him, St. John Damascene, considered that forgetfulness, along with ignorance and spiritual negligence, are the three giants of the devil, from which proceed all the passions and evils that affect fallen men. St. Mark the Ascetic thus describes these three fundamental and indissociable spiritual illnesses, their relationships and their effects. In his letter to Nicholas, quote, There are three foreign giants, strong and mighty, whom you must consider. On them rests all the might of our formidable spiritual enemy, those who are held as the mighty giants of the wicked one, are ignorance, the mother of all evils, forgetfulness, her sister, associate and helper, negligence, who weaves in the soul a garment of a veil dark with black clouds. She strengthens and fortifies the other two, giving them their substance by introducing evil on an endemic level and by rooting it in particularly heedless souls. The rest of the passions grow and are strengthened thanks to negligence, forgetfulness, and ignorance. These support one another and cannot stand without the others. The might of the adverse powers, as well as the strength of the princes of evil, is made manifest through them. By them, the whole army of maleficent spirits worms its way in, is strengthened, and can bring about its designs. End of quote. 
we have seen that it is difficult to determine what comes first in the process of the fall, whether it be the seduction of sensual pleasure that leads man to ignore and forget God, or whether on the contrary it be ignorance and forgetfulness of God that cause man to turn away and turn towards sensible reality. There exists, as we have noted, a dialectic of these two opinions that justifies sometimes advancing the one and sometimes the other. Thus, St. Diodocus of Photiki favors the first solution. Seduced by sensual pleasure, Adam and Eve begin to forget God. The first Eve preaches to us that when we use sight, taste, and all the other senses beyond measure, they dissipate the memory of the heart. Indeed, as long as she had looked with pleasure upon the forbidden tree, she consciously remembered the divine precept. This is also why she was still sheltered under the wings of divine love. But when she had looked upon the wood with pleasure, when she had touched it with ardent desire and finally had tasted of its fruit with intense pleasure, she gave all her desire over to the delight of the present, drawing in Adam to her, to her own fault through the fruit's sweet appearance. Since then, the human mind can only remember God and his commandments with difficulty. Other fathers put forward the inverse process. And Apophagem mentions the following, quote, The elders used to say, The powers of Satan that precede all errors are threefold, forgetfulness, negligence, and desire. Each time forgetfulness comes, it gives birth to negligence. From negligence proceeds desire, and desire causes man to fall. St. Hezekiel the priest similarly says, quote, From forgetfulness we fall into negligence, and from negligence into misplaced desires. And St. Macarios, the mind that rejects the remembrance of God succumbs either to anger or to lust. St. Mark the ascetic in particular agrees in this sense, writing, All those who forget God become sensual. Once man has forgotten God, the memory is divided up and dispersed, and finds itself invaded and occupied by a multitude of thoughts relating to the things of the sensible world toward which man has turned. St. Gregory the Sinite writes, quote, The origin and cause of the thoughts is the explosion of the simple and hom homogeneous memory following transgression. By becoming composite and diverse from the simple and homogeneous state it was, the memory lost the remembrance of God and corrupted its powers. This illness of the memory obviously has repercussions on all the soul's faculties. The mind, until now occupied with the thought of God alone, is now incessantly traversed by the flow of worldly thoughts, whose number increases more and more. Indeed, the memory, along with the imagination, becomes the main route by which man, by which alien thoughts penetrate man's heart and take over his mind, and is one of the principal sources of the thoughts which alienate him. Man receives the majority of representations that f form for him so many suggestions and temptations from the memory. It above all supplies his mind with the simple thoughts that call to his impassioned attachment. St. Maximus teaches, quote, Three paths give access to passionate thoughts in the mind. Sensation, 
the physical constitution, and the memory. The memory, when the remembrance of the objects that impassion us is reborn, which likewise inspires the mind with passionate thoughts. However, the memory often dir directly supplies passionate thoughts, as St. Thalassius emphasizes. He sees the principal source thereof, including the most formidable ones in this faculty. Quote, there are three things through which you receive impassioned thoughts, the senses, the memory, and the body's constitution. The most unfortunate thoughts are those that come from the memory. The memory especially produces such thoughts because it keeps the remembrance of past wrongs and the marks of previously established passions. And above all those of the pleasures linked to them, which gives its representations a strong seductive power. The memory then is often stirred up and aroused by the demons that seek in particular to lead it back to those reminiscences. For all these reasons, the memory in fallen man becomes one of the main causes by which the passions are aroused and entertained. This is why St. Isaac the Syrian sees in, it, sees in it the seat of the passions, the place where one can find them all. See ascetical homily number eight. The remembrance of evil thus becomes a habitual disposition in fallen man. The remembrance of evil is substituted to varying degrees for the remembrance of good which alone in the beginning occupied the memory. Lacking the power to be substituted completely, the former leaves the latter a more or less reduced space. In any case, an effort of this is, to, is the introduction into the memory of another division that it originally did not know. It's sundering into two parts, as St. Diodokos of Photiki says, quote, since a slip of our mind has placed it in a state of twofold knowledge, it is forced, even if it does not want to, to focus simultaneously on good and bad thoughts. Verily, to the measure that the mind hastens to conceive of good, it just as soon remembers evil. For as a result of Adam's disobedience, man's remembrance is sundered into twofold thought. End of quote. The remembrance of good and the remembrance of evil are not only neighbors, they are intermingled, contributing to the increase of confusion which the memory and the intellect already receive from the multiplicity and the diversity of the thoughts that permeate them. On the memory's confusion, please see St. Isaac the Syrian ascetical homily number 85. To continue, even if fallen man is covered with an abyss of forgetfulness, as St. Hezekius the priest says, the remembrance of God and of the good after Adam's transgression is not made impossible, but does become more difficult. Since then, the human mind can only remember God and his commandments with difficulty. St. Gregory the Sinite writes in the same vein, disobedience has distorted the relationship of the simple memory with the good. The memory has corrupted its powers and weakened its natural attraction to virtue. Indeed, as we have seen, man's mind finds itself suffused and occupied with a multitude of remembrances of worldly things and of thoughts, passionate or not, logis me, but in any case, alien to God. These recollections come to man's mind by reason of his attachment to this world, 
but also by reason of the activity of the demons who seek particularly in this way to keep man distanced from God. Footnote, this action is clearly revealed to the man seeking to regain the remembrance of God in prayer. As Evagrius in particular points out, the devil so passionately envies the man who prays that he employs every device to frustrate that purpose. Thus he does not cease to stir up thoughts of various affairs by means of the memory. Elsewhere, he explains at greater length, when the devils see that you are really fervent in your prayer, they suggest certain matters to your mind, giving you the impression that there are pressing concerns demanding attention. In a little while, they stir up your memory of these matters and move your mind to search into them. Then when it meets with failure, it becomes saddened and loses heart. End of footnote. To continue. In every case, these worldly memories exclude the remembrance of God. The economical principle proven in the faculties studied previously, that of desire and pleasure, applies equally to the memory. The more it recalls God, the less it recalls the world. Conversely, the more it remembers the world, the less it remembers God. Part 1 continued Anthropological Premises Original Health and the Origin of Illnesses Chapter 3 continued Pathology of Fallen Man Section 6 Pathology of the Imagination Of all men's faculties of knowledge, the imagination, fantasia, is one of the most elementary. Its natural function is to permit man to imagine sensible things as such and is thus directly linked to sensation and the sensible. The imagination transforms man's sensations into images and allows him to have a representation of what he perceives in the form of images. Likewise, in connection with the memory, it permits him to visualize the recollections remaining from what he has perceived. See Ascetical Homilies of St. Isaac the Syrian, number 46. To continue... The imagination, man's faculty for transforming perceptions into corresponding images and reproducing them when the memory remembers them, is also the capacity to produce new images by combining several of these images taken together or separately. Thus, the imagination, fantasia, can take on three forms. The productive imagination, the reproductive imagination, and the creative imagination. Footnote, the creative imagination designates in a large sense man's creative and inventive capacity, which often is brought into play by the reason, rather than by the imagination, properly speaking. Here we shall only consider the imagination in the strict sense, that is, the capacity to produce images. To continue. And the creative imagination, each being founded on the previous form. In its latter two forms... Under the particular conditions of sleep, it produces dreams. In man's primordial condition, his imagination was linked exclusively to his representation of the sensible creatures that existed. Though an indispensable faculty in the context of his necessary relations with the latter, the imagination was not an obstacle in, in these to his relationship with God, nor did it turn man away from him. Since man in the state in which he had been created was passionless, he was ignorant of the evil imagination. 
that is opposed to the simple and the right work of the mind. The images produced by him remained simple, that is, not linked to any passion, either to kindle it or be enkindled by it. They thus could take their place in the framework of natural theoria, natural contemplation, remaining transparent to the logai or the spiritual reasons of beings and to the divine energies immediately perceived and contemplated by Adam's mind in his representation of creatures. The images also aided him in praising God in his creation and to unite creation to him in accordance with his plan. Man, in his original state, thus had at his disposal a good imagination and then turned to the good, its movements to the extent that he made use of the images of creatures to raise himself and creation up to the creator. From this good imagination came forth good dreams in his sleep. On the distinction between good dreams and bad dreams, see Diodokos of Photiki on the spiritual knowledge and discrimination. To continue, as man was passionless, these dreams were characterized by their purity, composed of simple images or combinations of images that bore witness to the health of his soul, as St. Maximus indicates, quote, when the soul begins to feel well, the images during sleep then begin to seem to it simple and without confusion. End of quote. Within the scope of natural contemplation, these dreams moreover take on the form of visions. Stable, neatly constructed, and well-ordered groups of images, inspired by God and endowed with a definite spiritual meaning, and even during sleep, lifting man up to God by their symbolic character. Just as St. Maximus notes with regard to simple dreams, St. Daudokos of Photiki remarks that such visions bear witness to the soul's health. Quote, the dreams which appear to the soul through God's love are unerring criteria of its health. End of quote. Finding its place in the framework of natural contemplation, the imagination, however, had to be excluded from this within the scope of the direct knowledge of God. God transcending every being, and so every intellection and thought, and a fortiori, every representation in the form of image or figure. It has been said, notes this, this scholar of Dionysius, or the Areopagite, that no imagination has grounds to stand before God, for God is simply once and for all higher than all and beyond all thought. Man's spiritual growth then implies going beyond this good imagination at the same time as going beyond the sensible world. The attitude of the first man as regards the imagination corresponded to what Saints Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopouli describe, evoking those who, renewed by Christ, have recovered mankind's original condition and march on the same path as did the first Adam to the perfection that God destined for man when he created him to quote from century 65. Those who have in time made progress reject every imagination, the good as well as the bad. They drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, they reduce the imaginations to ashes and consume them with pure prayer by the minds freeing and divesting of every figure. Whenceforth, they simply strive toward God and receiving him 
and unite themselves to him in the unity beyond forms. End of quote. As we shall see more precisely in what follows, union with God in theoria and contemplation is only possible within pure prayer. This is to say that it presupposes, on one hand, dispassion, and on the other hand, the absence of every representation, whatever it be, of every thought, and above all, of every imagination, and relates not only to sensible and or human things, but also to God himself. At this level of contemplation of theoria, the imagination also ceases to operate. Man is permanently and closely united to God, and his very mind is vigilant in sleep. Divine visions supplant his dreams. St. Simeon the New Theologian writes, quote, He who is enlightened in the Holy Spirit sees in reality and in spirit, whether he be awake or asleep, these benefits that eye has not seen, that the ear has not heard, that have not entered the heart of man, and that even the angels desire to behold, end quote. Yet these visions are no longer of images and no longer engage the imagination. Rather, they are produced in the noose of the perfect man by the Holy Spirit himself. That is why one must not call them dreams, but well and truly visions, theorias, and contemplations. Through the ancestral sin, the imagination in man becomes an instrument of separation from God. From then on, man fills his soul, devoid of God with its creations. This is true of the creative imagination. One cannot help but recall here St. Athanasius's explanation in which the soul, unable to remain immobile and objectless after having turned away from God, to whom its original nature destined it, begins to imagine objects to which it might turn. Quote, the soul then moves, but this is no longer toward virtue, or so as to see God, taking thought of what is not. It transforms the power within and uses it to turn toward the desires that it has imagined. To continue, evil has not from the beginning been with God or in God, nor has any substantive existence, but that man, in default of the vision of good, began to devise and imagine for themselves what was not after their own pleasure. The soul of man shutting fast its eyes, by which it can see God, has imagined evil for itself, and moving therein knows not that, thinking it is doing something, it is doing nothing. For it is imagining what is not, nor is it abiding in its original nature, but what the soul is, is evidently the product of its own disorder. For it was made to see God, and to be enlightened by Him, but of its own accord, in God's stead, it has sought corruptible things and darkness. Thus it is that man, having become ignorant of the spiritual world, makes for himself a fantastical world through his intellect and imagination. He clings to this world, all the more so, since it corresponds to the sensual desires and passions that have developed in him. Fallen man thus finds himself in an alien, in an unreal world, and, quote, nothing in life appears as it is. Rather, life shows us some things in place of others according to our deceived imaginations, mocking the hopes of their blessed onlookers and hiding itself under the illusion of appearances. 
End of quote from St. Gregory of Nyssa on Virginity, chapter 3. Dr. Larcher continues, But fallen man also clutters his mind, from which he has excluded God with images of the sensible world that his imagination along with his memory present to him. Fallen man is passionately attached to the sensible world, but a sensible world closed in on itself and no longer revealing to him anything of his creator. He allows himself to be taken over completely by it. The images that he has of the sensible world in his perception or his recollections are no longer how they were in the original Adam, transparent to the divine energies. They no longer remind him of God, nor do they raise him up anymore to God. They are completely opaque. Man, alienated to objects reduced to their sensible dimension, possesses a mind ceaselessly inhabited or transversed by the mass of thoughts and images of these objects. This happens not only while awake, but also in sleep, where he is invaded by the dream images. Far from remaining a secondary faculty of knowledge according to its nature, the imagination, along with the memory, which itself is perverted, dominates the mind, dragging it behind it itself and alienating it. Since then, the mind Quote, roams from phantom to phantom, each one dissolving itself into the other, from John the Solitary's dialogue. The imagination also takes possession of the soul, permeating it in a myriad of ways. Saints Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopouli in the Philokalia write, quote, This is why the Divine Fathers speak about it and against it, that is, the imagination, in so many ways. Like the Daedalus of myth, this imagination has numerous forms, and like the Hydra, many heads. Through it traverse and pass the loathsome murderers who come to unite themselves and mix with the soul. They turn it into a hornet's hive, a resting place for futile and passionate thoughts. End of quote. In that way, not only does the imagination, quote, oppose pure prayer, with all its power, but also leaves no room in the soul for the thought and remembrance of God, which normally ought to occupy it. St. Parthenophius compares the soul in its normal state, that is, when it is completely occupied with the remembrance of God, to an already painted picture in which no room is left for any other form, figure, or image. In man's fallen state, however, the opposite occurs. The picture is entirely filled with the figures and forms imposed by the imagination, leaving no free space remaining for the thought of God. In fallen man's interior life, the imagination occupies a greater space and plays a deadlier role since it exerts itself in close relation with the passions. Quote, today man is possessed in his movement by the irrational imagination of the passions. Notes St. Maximus. On one hand, the imagination arouses the passions, offering them supports upon which they can be put to use and developed. On the other hand, especially, the passions incite the imagination's activity and output. Being nourished mainly by the imagination, they bring the latter to beget images, both new and old, that suit them and provide them the pleasure they seek. St. Maximus observes, quote, from his four centuries on charity, 
Just as the mind of a hungry man imagines bread, and that of a thirsty man water, just as the mind of the glutton imagines all sorts of food, the mind of him who loves pleasure imagines womanly forms, the mind of the vain man imagines the honors that come from man, the mind of him who holds a grudge imagines how to take vengeance on his offender, the mind of the jealous man imagines how to do evil to him who he envies, and thus with all the other passions. End of quote. This happens while awake, but also in sleep. The same thing applies to unhealthy dreams as to bodily illnesses which are not contracted at the moment when they seem to be born, but well in advance, observed St. John Cassianos. They are the sign of an evil that smolders internally, which the rest of sleep brings to the surface, revealing the hidden fever of the passions that we have contracted in our reveling throughout the day in unhealthy thoughts. Ascetics have always known that dreams are formed by the imagination, by function of the dispositions of the body and the soul, and in the latter case as collections of residual memories most often linked to the business and preoccupations of the preceding state of wakefulness, or as a means to satisfy the lusts of the desirative power, or as a response relative to the irascible power of anger to his anger or his fear in nightmares be the matter. Thus, St. Simeon, the new theologian, notes that, quote, that which occupies the soul and enters it into it in wakefulness also keeps hold of its imagination and thought during sleep. St. Nikitas Stathatos observes that, quote, the imaginings of the mind correspond to the disposition of the inner man and his worries in dreams. And St. Maximus specifies, quote, when desire grows strong, the noose, the intellect in sleep, imagine things that, are, that give sensual pleasure. And when the insensitive grows strong, it imagines things that cause fear. St. Simeon, the new theologian, writes similarly, quote, when the desirative part of the soul is pushed toward the passions, the embraces, the sensual delights, and pleasures of life, the soul perceives the same things in its dreams. If the irascible causes it to be wroth with its fellows, it dreams only of eruptions of wild beasts, battles of serpents, and argues with his adversaries as before the court. If it be the rational part that is exalted by vanity or by pride, the soul imagines itself having wings and flying in the air and throned on a high seat and marching at the head of the people before a, an entourage of carriages, and so forth." Sendakiris further details this description of the relationship of dreams to the various passions. Quote, if one keeps the soul in the love of matter and pleasure, one seeks in the imagination after the possession of things, comfort and money the forms of women, passionate embraces. One soils the tunic and sullies the flesh. If one has a greedy and avicious soul, gold is seen everywhere. One demands it, one abuses interest, one receives it in treasuries. But compassion is lacking and one is condemned. If one has an angry and jealous soul, wild beasts and venomous serpents pursue one. One falls prey to fright and fear. 
If one has a soul inflated by vainglory, one regards oneself as acclaimed, surrounded by people. One imagines thrones of power and authority. One considers that one possesses what one no longer has, or at least what one will have, and one it always on the watch. If the soul is proud and full of presumption, behold, one is born in the most glorious carriages. One can even have wings and fly in the air. All and all tremble before the height of this power. End of quote. Dreams thus reveal by their presence and form the nature and strength of the passions whence they come, and consequently show that the soul is sick, even indicating by which illnesses and which of its parts it is more particularly stricken. As Evagrius notes, quote, The demons wage a veritable war against our concupiscal appetite. They show conversations with our friends, banquets with our relatives, whole choruses of women, all kinds of other things calculated to produce delight. Under the influence of this part of our soul, when they grow unhealthy while our passions undergo a full-bodied development, when on the other occasion, on another occasion, the demons stimulate the irascible appetite, they constrain us to walk along precipitous paths where they have us encounter armed men, poisonous snakes, and man-eating beasts. We are filled with terror before such sights, and fleeing, we are pursued by the beasts and armed men. Let us then guard this part of the soul. End of quote. To continue. In this twofold relationship of the imagination with the passions, the fathers emphasize that the demons play a very important role, whether they push man to imagine things in response to his passions and by means thereof, as we have just explained, or whether they direct, directly arouse in him images and fantasies with the aim of activating the passions. In this latter case, they manage to cast images into man's mind, whether asleep or awake, which are completely new to him, having no relation to any of his past or present sensory experiences. Footnote, this appears characteristically in the story from the Apophobagamada, if logos on, quote, it is said of an elder who went to Skidis, still having a very small son, who did not know what a woman was. So, when he became a man, the demons showed him images of women, and he informed his father, who was stunned. Once, when he went up into Egypt and his father and him saw women, he said to his father, Abba, these are the people who come to me in the night at Skidis. And the old man was amazed at how the demons in the desert were showing him images of women. End of quote. End of footnote. To continue, having no relation to any of his past or present sensory experiences, which he himself has not created and which somehow are imposed on his mind. Their plan in this is to cause man to make new mistakes or to lead him on to wicked paths that he has not yet trodden. In any case, is a question of the demons leading man astray and keeping him distanced from God. The main form taken by the demonic suggestions that push man to sin seems to be imaginings. If thoughts 
are often associated with imaginary images in ascetic works, the latter are often reduced to the former or have their origin in them. As a result, the imagination appears as the main point of entry of these suggestions into the soul. Quote, it is like a bridge that the demons cross, the saints have said. Notes, St. Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopouli. St. Hezekius the priest writes, quote, the demons always push us to sin by the deceitful imagination. Satan cannot arouse thoughts and expose them to the mind, heart, noose, so as to deceive it without the imagination. The imagination seems in any case to be the main instrument of demonic activity on the human soul, during sleep or while awake. Through it, the demons harass man, seeking not only, as we have seen, to drive him to sin and to awaken or stir up his passions, but also to trouble him in various ways, to arouse in him, in particular, sorrow and anxiety to deceive him, to lead him astray in diverse illusions and to even enslave him. St. Hezekiah the priest even has it, it play a role of foremost importance in man's fall. Quote, Thus did Satan separate Adam from God by giving him to imagine that he possessed divine dignity. And thus the fallacious and crafty adversary continues to deceive sinners. Adam was tempted by the devil from his creation, and so knew of the demonic suggestions that penetrated through means of the imagination. Before he sinned, he refused, however, to pay any attention to him, to them, to enter into dialogue with them, and to assent to them. He thus was unaware of any evil imagination, his imagination being inactive with regard to evil. Fallen man, on the contrary, opens himself up to these suggestions, thus making them his own. He feeds his imagination on them, thus engendering and developing the evil imagination that we have described above, and making himself completely accessible to demonic activity and its effects. The fathers consequently underscore man's responsibility in the perversion of his imagination, which constitutes its illness. For lack of remaining faithful to the divine commandment, of remaining attentive to God alone, of guarding his heart from every alien thought, in short, for lack of remaining sober and vigilant and niptikipate, man has turned his imagination, which had been given him as a bridge to God, into, quote, a bridge that demons cross. As long as man has not recovered this vigilance, this watchfulness and nipsis that characterized his nature in its perfect and healthy state, his heart remains open to the wicked suggestions that the enemy makes to him by way of his imagination. He allows himself to be invaded day and night by images that set his mind adrift and alienate him, rendering him and keeping him far from God. As long as man imagines what distances him from God, he thereby makes plain that not only his imagination, but also his entire soul is sick. To conclude chapter 3, Pathology of Fallen Man, section 7, Pathology of the Senses and Bodily Functions. It is not only on the level of the soul's faculties that the ancestral sin has introduced changes, made deviations, and engendered illnesses. The bodily functions and the senses 
the ways in which man makes use of his body's different organs and his modes of sensory perception are themselves also perverted, and by this fact have become ill. The whole man was made in the image of God, his body as well as his soul, with the mission of achieving in them the whole likeness and the goal of being completely deified. The fathers emphasize that the virtuous life is a life in which the body takes part. There are bodily virtues, but the body also participates in the majority of the soul's virtues. Certain charismata of the spirit, St. Gregory of Palamas observes, quote, act through the intermediary of the body. Generally speaking, the body itself also participates in its sanctification through its faculties and energies. Working together with the soul and under its direction, the body receives from it the grace of the spirit. The body is called to be deified with the soul. St. Macarius writes, quote, Just as God created the heavens and the earth so that man might live there, he thus created man's body and soul so that they might have their own abode, so that he might live and rest in the body, as in his own home, having the beloved soul as a wife full of beauty. End of quote. Underscoring the fundamental unity of the human makeup, the unity of the soul and the body and the human person and their common destiny, St. Gregory Palamas continues, quote, What is the joy, the movement of the body that is not an activity common to the soul and the body? There do exist blessed passions, common activities which do not nail down the spirit to the flesh but which draw the flesh to a dignity close to that of the spirit, obliging it also to turn to what is higher. What are these? They are the spiritual activities that do not proceed from the body into the intellect, but descend from the noose into the body in order to transform it for the better and to deify it by these actions and passions. In spiritual men, the grace of the spirit is transmitted by way of the soul to the body and gives even to the body the experience of divine things, permitting it to feel the same passion as the soul that possesses divine experience. Since the soul feels the passion of divine things, it possesses without a doubt a passionate part, divine and worthy of praise. When it pursues this blessed activity, it also deifies the body. The body then does not move, pressed by bodily and material passions, but returns to itself, rejects all association with evil things, and itself inspires its own deification, one that is inalienable. End of quote from the triads. To continue, one of the body's basic functions is to serve as an instrument to the soul in its relationship with material creation. Through the intermediary of the bodily senses, the soul becomes acquainted with sensible beings, and through the body's organs, it can concretely enter into relation with and act upon them. Sensory perception, the gateway to knowledge of material beings, is at once a somatic and psychic process. At its foundation is sensation, the physical modification of a sense on contact with a corresponding object, through which Objective information as to the object's appearances is communicated to the soul. Another operation then takes place in which the sensory data are interpreted by all the faculties that contribute to knowledge in the soul. In a complex process in which the intellect, the memory, the imagination, and desire play a part, 
the object such as it is, is presented by the senses, is situated in space and in relation to other objects. It is also named, defined as regards its nature, its sense, its function, and value. This interpretation can constituting the essence of sensory perception is not limited to the object, even though it takes objective data as its foundation. It does not consist in providing some sort of description of the object, but rather elaborates on it by function of the, no the knowing subject's values. More precisely, perception proceeds more from the latter than from the object itself. Thus, St. John Chrysostom writes, quote, our judgments are not formed according to the nature of the things that assail us, but according to the soul's sentiment that beholds them through the eyes. Quote. The form of sensory perception henceforth seems to be inevitably relative to the spiritual level of the perceiving subject and dependent upon the state of all the faculties that intervene in the interpretive process we've described. This form, especially is in general a function of what the subject knows, understands, desires, imagines, and remembers, etc. In man's original state, all the faculties were oriented toward God. Through them, Adam perceived in God all the beings of creation. He recognized through his mind, in perceiving each of them, their spiritual reasons. His sensory perception was thus subordinated to natural contemplation or natural theoria. In this way, he made a normal, healthy use of all the faculties taking part in sensory perception. And first of all, his senses in conformity with their natural end goal. He thereby also kept his pure soul, his soul pure, as St. Maximus indicates, assigning the same task to the man renewed in Christ, quote, one keeps his soul undefiled for the, for the love according to God. If one instructs his senses to perceive in all piety the visible world and all things contained in it, in order that they might transmit to the soul the greatness of their spiritual reasons, their logai, that are at the heart of things. St. Nikitas Tathatos writes, from the same perspective, quote, when the mind attains to supernatural things, the senses remain according to nature. They are opened to the causes outside of all passion. They only seek their reasons and their natures. They discern without error their energies and qualities. They are neither affected nor do they go to them contrary to nature. End of quote. Elsewhere, St. Nikitas Stathatos teaches that all the actions ramified in the senses, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, are moved according to nature if what is better prevails. In addition, the Father sometimes reminds us of what the correct uses of the senses in a, is in accordance with their nature. St. Athanasius thus specifies, quote, the body has eyes in order to behold creation and to know its creator through its harmonious order. St. John Chrysostom likewise says, quote, the eyes have been given you so that you might give glory to the Lord at the sight of creation. End of quote. And further, the eye is made to extol the Creator in beholding the creatures of God. End of quote. Saint Serpion of Thumius also recalls from the same perspective the following words addressed to God by the psalmist Unto thee have I lifted up my eyes, unto thee who dwellest in heaven. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hands of their master, 
so do our eyes look unto the Lord our God. Psalms 122, verses 1 to 2. In the same way the ears were made so that man might be able to listen to the divine words and laws of God, and so that he might be made able to hear God in all the world's sounds. Smell, likewise, was conceived so that man might smell in every being the aroma of Christ. Taste, so that man might taste in every food that the Lord is good. And touch, so that man might touch in everything the word of God. In short, the end goal of the senses is to contribute to the uniting of all sensible creatures to God in conformity with the task that God gave man when creating him. Therefore, St. Nikitas Thetatos writes, quote, Endowed with senses, we must perceive sensible things well, lifting ourselves through their beauty up to the Creator and bringing perfect knowledge of these things back to Him. Quote. Adam, using his senses while subordinating them to his mind that contemplated the spiritual reasons of beings, had an objective perspective perception of these of these latter, knowing them in their true nature and discerning their energies and qualities without error, as Saint Nikitas Stathatos says. Adam and Eve perceived reality identically before their sin, since all their faculties and senses were completely in harmony with the one God and perceiving everything according to him. In his paradisical state, all man's bodily organs performed according to their true nature and purpose, namely, to act according to God and to work with deification in mind. Consequently, they have to be exercised in the man renewed in Christ, which causes the apostles to say, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. In the human being, such as God wished him to be, the hands have the function of accomplishing in God the necessary activities, of serving the divine will, of acting for justice, and in particular of striving toward him in prayer. In the same way, the feet have the function of permitting man to go to serve God and accomplish good. As for the tongue, its purpose is to proffer words of truth and constantly to him the Creator's glory. Every bodily organ acts normally and healthily when it is exercised in God and moves for God the heart in serving as the center of prayer and in beating for God in supplication, the lungs in providing the rhythm, etc. In short, the body is spiritually healthy when it strives toward God in all its activities, thus becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit. When its senses are in good order and when all its organs are means to leading a virtuous life, paths of contemplation, and instruments of union with God. Through sin, this order is turned upside down. Man, turning entirely away from God, turns his senses and bodily organs away from their natural and normal end goal in order to turn them contra-naturally toward the sensible world. Thus perverted and lost, they become ill. On the levels of both his body and soul, man is alienated within a fallen nature contrary to his true and fundamental nature. St. Macario says that when the apostle speaks of the old man, quote, 
He understands thereby a complete man, having eyes in addition to our eyes, a head in addition to our head, ears in addition to our ears, hands in addition to our hands, feet in addition to our feet. For it is the entire man, body, and soul, whom the devil has sullied and overthrown. He has dressed man in the old man, who does not submit to the law of God, in such a way that man no longer sees what he wants, but sees and hears in a perverse way. His feet hasten to do evil, his hands commit iniquity, and his heart holds wicked plans. End of quote. From Macarius's homilies, to continue. In place of providing the mind the material for its natural contemplation of visible creatures, the senses provide it with pretexts for a multitude of vain and material thoughts. Instead of being subordinate to the noose and contributing to its elevation to God, they draw it away and lower it to the sensible world, considering in itself, alienating the intellect, the heart, the mind, the noose, and subjugating it to the world. Consequently, the senses block its access to spiritual realities. This is the meaning of what St. Isaac the Syrian speaks of as the illness of sensations. Sedical homily number one. Instead of serving God and fulfilling his will, fallen man's senses and bodily organs enter into the service of his carnal desires, serving him in accomplishing sin and supporting his passions. Above all, man uses them to obtain the sensual delight he seeks. As a result, the eyes are used in a perverted way so as to provide his lust with sensible objects and to delight in them through the eyes. He also uses his ears in a perverted way to listen to wicked words and to take pleasure in them, to pay attention to vain words and to distract his mind in them. Taste enters the service of the passion of gluttony. Smell is turned aside to the variety of erotic perfumes. See Athanasios against the pagans. And touch serves as the organ of manifold passions. Turned away from God, the cognitive faculties cease to interpret sensible data according to the spirit. Fallen man no longer has an objective, just perception of beings, one that conforms to their very reality and adequate to what they truly are since he no longer perceives in beings the divine energies that define their authentic nature. Almost everything we see, we see other than it is, observes St. Ambrosi. Man perceives beings in function of his sensual desires. He situates and orders them, gives them meaning and value in function of these passions. From then on, perception becomes subjective and variable in that it no longer is in accord with the very reality of the objects on which it focuses. Rather, it constitutes a projection of each person's fallen consciousness, changing according to the shape, distribution, and degree of their passionate desires. The fact that, despite these differences, all mankind can be considered roughly to perceive reality through their senses in more or less the same way signifies in no way that their perception is objective. On the contrary, it simply demonstrates the concord of subjective subjectivities partaking of a common fall and the fundamental identity of the deformities suffered by the perceptive faculty of Adam's descendants. The bodily organs are turned in the same way 
by sin away from their original end goal and normal function and begin to act pathologically. St. Athanasios, expounding the consequences of the ancestral sin, explains how the soul caused all the bodily functions to act the wrong way. Quote, the soul thus moved the hands toward the opposite goal, making them commit murder. It turned the sexual organs to adultery instead of legitimate procreation. As for the tongue, it caused it to utter curses, insults, and false oaths instead of words of blessing. Again, it made the hands strike and rob men, our fellow creatures. It made the feet swift to shed blood and turned the stomach to drunkenness and an unappeased satiety. St. John Chrysostom writes similarly, quote, Let us regard our members. We shall find them also to be the cause of our ruin if we do not take care. This will not be the result of their nature, but the result of our negligence. Functioning, therefore, against nature, the senses and bodily organs act in an insane and mad way. St. Akitas Tathato speaks of the insanity of the senses. St. Athanasios also writes, highlighting the soul's implication in this distraction, quote, For just as if a charioteer, having mounted his chariot on the race course, were to pay no attention to the goal toward which he should be driving, but ignoring this, simply were to drive the horse as he could, or in other words, as he would, and often drive against those he met, and often down steep places, rushing wherever he impelled himself by the speed of the team, thinking that thus running he has not missed the goal. So the soul too, turning away from the way toward God and driving the members of the body beyond what is proper, or rather driven herself along with them. End of quote. End of part one. Anthropological premises.